0: A quick bit of family news. It was a big weekend for the pastoral staff team. It was my birthday on Friday. (laughs) Um, It was Tilly's birthday on Saturday. But more importantly, and the only reason I'm telling you any of that, is because the Cleworths also had a birthday in their family. And that is, many of you will know, Ash has been pregnant. And yesterday, I gave birth to baby Judah Levi Cleworth. And so, really... uh, Something very special for those guys, particularly if you know their story. And so uh, we're incredibly thankful to God for them. So I will jump in. Hey, uh, I reckon most of us live the bulk of our lives on autopilot, Uh, by which I mean, I reckon most of us tend to get in what we might call a groove... And then we we live out of that groove for weeks, months, sometimes even years at a time, without really ever stepping back or taking stop and thinking about the groove we're in and the direction that we're heading. Now, to some degree, I think that is helpful. In, in some ways, it's kind of necessary. I right? just think of your morning routine. No one wants to wake up every morning and try and figure out, do I brush my teeth or not? You know, Do I have a shower? What am I going to have for breakfast? Is it coffee this morning? or No, you, you just have a routine. You set it and you forget it, and you sort of just operate out of that. Same is true with some of the big questions of life, right? Most of us don't want to be having an existential crisis every couple of weeks, Uh, and so we tend to work out of some well-established presuppositions and then just get on with the daily stuff of life. The thing is, every every now and again, uh, something happens, which I I think wakes us up and causes us to step back and take stock. Uh, Maybe it is a a near-death experience or some tragic news or the death of a loved one. Maybe it is a a significant birthday or the birth of a child. Maybe it's a major life event like a marriage or a divorce or sometimes even a redundancy. Uh, These are the kinds of events that have the effect of kind of waking us up, uh, getting us off autopilot, at least for a moment, and then forcing us to reassess our lives and whether they're actually heading in the direction that we want them to, that they're supposed to be heading. The reason I bring this up is that I think today's passage has the potential to be one of those kinds of moments. See, today's passage is going to take us to the very heart of the universe, It's going to take us to the center of ultimate reality, into heaven itself, and give us a vision into the throne room of God. When we're there, we are going to see or overhear, if you like, the chorus of heaven praising the one who sits on the throne and the lamb who was slain. What's more, The reason that we are given this insight, this vision, this picture into heaven is to encourage us to join the chorus of our hearts to the chorus of heaven and join in that song of praise. And so I say at the very least, I suspect today's passage will require a degree of course correction for all of us particularly if you've been on autopilot. And again, sometimes it's just kind of necessary. You don't want to have to always make decisions every day. But I think if you've been on autopilot today, we'll just require to course correct and just make sure that your life is actually living in sync with ultimate reality. But for others of us, it may require more than that, perhaps even a radical reversal, a complete 180 degrees of the way that you're living your life. But if you let the vision of today's have its intended effect, the center of your life will fundamentally change. Uh, From the outside, someone else looking at it, they they may notice some small differences, but things might might remain the same. But you will know at the center of your life, things are radically different because you are no longer at the center. Instead, God has taken up central place in your life. That is the intended effect of this vision. And so the question I want you asking, the question I want all of us asking, is, is God, is the lamb, are they worth it? Are God and the lamb worth upending your life for, revolving your life around? Are they worth living for? Are they worth making sacrifices for? Cause make no mistake, Jesus says, you wanna follow me? Deny yourself, take up your cross, and then follow me. They're required sacrifices. Are they worth, if necessary, dying for? Are they worth it? See, uh, as we heard last week from Charlie, the book of Revelation is ultimately a letter written by the Apostle John to a series of seven churches in ancient Asia Minor and modern-day Turkey in which each of the recipients of this letter were tempted to throw in the towel and just give up. Uh, Some of them were being persecuted. Some Christians in those days were even killed and Jesus tells them, I want you to remain faithful to me, even if it costs you your life. Others of these people, these churches, were seduced by the wisdom, the power and the wealth of the world And they didn't look all that different from the world. And so Jesus is saying to them in this letter, I want you to come out of the world and remain faithful to me, even if it's costly. And so again, over the course of this book, we're going to see all sorts of encouragements, reasons to come out of the world, remain true to Jesus. But the central focus of these two chapters is going to be on the worthiness of God, the worthiness of the land, to help us see they are worth giving up everything to follow. And so today, it could just require a slight course correction for you, or maybe it's a total upending of your life. But either way, my prayer is that this passage has its intended effect and that we all leave today thoroughly convinced that it's worth it. How are we going to do it? Well, uh, we'll take each chapter at a time, very simple structure. Chapter 4, God is worthy. Chapter 5, the Lamb is worthy. Chapter 4, God is worthy. Chapter 5, the Lamb is worthy. We'll start with chapter 4. We're about to read from chapter 4. In terms of the context of chapter 1 to 3, we've been introduced to the Apostle John as the author of this letter, again, written to seven churches. And John is on the island of Patmos, Uh, I think it's in the Mediterranean somewhere. He's there because he's been exiled for um, testifying about Jesus. And then one day, on a Sunday, Jesus appears to him in glory and majesty and commissions John to write this letter. And so in chapter 4, verse 1, we read this. After this, that is after those events, I looked. And there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I'd heard first speaking to me like a trumpet said, "'Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this.'" Now, this is important to set the scene, because back in chapter 1, again, Jesus did appear to John in glory and majesty, but he appears to John in his environment. That is, I think it's safe to say he appears to John in Patmos. This time, John hears this voice And what he sees is a door standing open in heaven and the voice, which is the voice of Jesus, is calling him, hey, come on up. In other words, John is being taken out of his environment and into the environment of the one seated on the throne and God, as we'll see. And so in verse 2, we read this, At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven and someone sitting on it. Uh, In John's day, Emperor Domitian, was on the throne of the Roman Empire. And for many people, that vision of a throne and Domitian on it would have inspired utter fear. Uh, Domitian is well known for history, kind of remembered in history as having executed up to 11 different senators of the Roman Senate. And so if that was how he treated senators, you can imagine he wouldn't have had any problems persecuting, even executing, Christians, followers of Jesus. Some of those persecuted Christians are reading this book. And therefore, right from the start of the vision, John and they need to know that there at the center of reality, there is a throne and someone is seated on it, but it's not Domitian. The word throne appears 41 times throughout the book. Fifteen of them, so almost half, appear in these two chapters. And the, the, the significance, the symbolism of the throne is rule and authority and so it's a way of saying that there is someone on the throne and it's god it's not the mission and so i don't know uh, if for you right now life feels a little out of control if you're wondering you know what on earth is going to happen well again jesus wants john and his readers and therefore us to know god is still on the throne but how is this god described Is this, like Domitian, a throne to shrink back from in fear? Well, it depends whose side you're on. Look at verse 3. And the one who sat there, that is on the throne, had the appearance of jasper and ruby and a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Now, Charles told us last week uh, that Revelation is full of symbols, and so it's often the case that as you're reading, you kind of need to decipher the meaning of the symbols to to fully appreciate the vision that is being, or the the image that is being presented. Having said that, there, there is a slight risk when you do that, that you can miss the forest for the trees, that you end up getting so caught, what does that precious jewel mean, or what does that represent, that you actually miss the bigger image of what we're being shown, which according to one commentator, um, what's his name, Tom Schreiner, he, he, he just says, this is a picture of the awesome beauty of the Lord. It's the awesome beauty of the Lord. Uh, having said all of that, I, I do think there's maybe one thing just to draw your attention to, that's the rainbow, says there's a rainbow-like emerald that encircles the throne. Uh, The rainbow, most commentators will point out, is a symbol of God's faithfulness to his people, even in the midst of judgment. And so think back to the flood. Among other things, the rainbow was a sign that God was going to be faithful to his people, even as he brought judgment on the world. That's kind of important to keep in mind because as we're going to see in the coming weeks, the one seated on the throne will bring judgment on the world. And yet, he is also the one who will show incredible grace and compassion and mercy and covenant faithfulness to those who are his. So there you have the centerpiece of heaven, the centerpiece of ultimate reality. God is on the throne encircled by a rainbow. Next, we get a series of concentric circles that almost resonate out beyond the throne. And so in verse 4, we read, Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. Now, there's a bit of debate as to who these 24 elders are. Uh, Most likely, I think the best guess is that they are angelic figures, so they are angels... But they represent, and this is the more important part, they represent the people of God from both Old and New Testament. And so the reason there'd be 24 is that you have kind of the 12 patriarchs of the 12 tribes of Israel, and then you have the 12 apostles of Jesus Christ. But don't miss the fact that they're on the thrones and they're wearing crowns. See, in the unreality of this world, you know, what you see, what you touch, serving Jesus is not a career-advancing, reputation-enhancing, bank-account-building exercise. But in the ultimate reality of heaven, at the center of all things, to worship and serve the Lord and God of the universe is the highest honor and privilege you could possibly imagine. They're on thrones, wearing crowns, and they represent people like you and I. But then you've got the throne, you've got the 24 elders in this circle. In between the two, we're introduced to these creatures, I think they're called, four creatures. And just as a heads up, they're a little bit odd. Uh, There's some serious Old Testament references going on. And so they sound like this interesting mixture, a combination of Ezekiel 1 where Ezekiel sees cherubim and <clears throat> Isaiah six, where Isaiah sees seraphim but it's a it's a combination of the both and so if, if none of those mean anything to you that that's okay really what what we're seeing here is a picture of the highest order of angelic beings in all of creation. final thing before we read it is that most commentators say so there's four animals or four different creatures. And they're supposed to represent all of animate creation, as in everything that's kind of lives and breathes, if you like. And so and we're going to see a, lo- a lion, sorry, that represents the wild animals, an ox, domesticated animals, the man, humanity, the eagle, the birds of the air. But enough preamble. Let's actually just read it. Verse 6 and 8. It says, in the center, around the throne, so between the throne and the elders, Were four living creatures. And they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had the face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. And each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Now, try not to get too caught up in the wings and the eyes. Main emphasis, notice what they're doing. Next verse. Day and night, they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. The hymns in Revelation uh, always help to interpret the visions. And so if you're reading through and you're like, you know, what does the sea of glass represent? And what is the thunder and lightning? And what, what's the jasper and the emerald? Uh, if nothing else at the very least they tell us that this God is holy again the hymns always interpret the visions and so these four living creatures which represent all of created beings are saying holy 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 is the Lord God almighty but what does holy mean what does holy mean well, it's kind of a, it is one of those tricky words to pin down When you're describing what God is like, you reach for the word holy, and when you say, well, what does holy mean? You're like, well, it's kind of like God. Um, John Piper says that the word holy is the little boat in which we reach the world's end in the ocean of language. In other words, when you're trying to describe what God is like, you've got human language, words to use. And so you get in the little boat, and you sail through the ocean of language, and he's imagining sort of flat earth, so you get to the edge of the ocean, and it just sort of pours off. Uh, And you get to the edge of the ocean of language and you have the word holy to describe what God is like. Beyond that word, language just no longer has anything for you. And so what is God like? Well, God is holy, but to say that God is holy is not all that different to saying that God is God. But holy he is, and so holy he is declared, not once, not twice, but three times. You know, in Hebrew, I think... A superlative is when you put the two words together. So holy, holy, is he's the most holy. And then for God, they create this whole new way of speaking. Holy, holy, holy. It's the only thing he's ever described as three times. And so they say it. Holy, holy, holy. But they never stop saying it. Day and night, they never stop saying it. Which raises the question, what do you never stop saying? Uh, maybe you find yourself talking about a, you know, a favorite hobby, or a favorite pastime. Constantly talking about your job, or maybe a child or a, a new love interest. At the center of ultimate reality, the supreme angelic beings, which represent all of created beings, are performing the function that everything on earth was created to perform. To praise God for who he is. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Notice what happens when the creatures sing their chorus, the 24 elders also join in. Remember, they represent redeemed humanity, are the people of God. And so when the creatures sing, verse 10 and 11, they, that is the 24 elders, lay their crowns before the throne and they say, you are worthy. Our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? Because you created all things. And by your will they were created and have their being. Again, it's a, it's a picture of redeemed humanity doing what it was created to do. Ascribing power, glory, honor to the one who sits on the throne. Now, we, we tend to live our lives, again, on autopilot, right? Right? But we tend to just default into assuming that we are the center of the universe. Now, we never quite come out and put it that way, but it's the way we function. As if our problems, our needs, our pains are the most important thing. Now, as a result of that, we treat God like He exists to solve our problems. Now, don't get me wrong. God loves to solve our problems. He loves to... Heal our pains. The thing is, he doesn't always do it in the way that we want him to. Why? Because we're not the center of the universe. God is. And so, you know, to tweak a Bible verse, God demonstrates his love for us in this. Not that he makes us the center of his universe, but that he invites us to make him the center of ours. He invites us to actually live our lives in accordance with reality, to recognize that He is the center of all things, that we have been created to bring honor and glory and praise to Him. That's what this vision is all about, to to wake us up to reality, to shake us out of our self-centeredness, and instead remember that we exist to worship God. Now, it, it could be that at this point you're... Asking a question, because in the past when I've talked around this concept, a fairly common objection to this whole idea is, well, hang on. So God wants to be worshipped. He's created everything to worship him. Isn't that a little bit arrogant? Like, if we want to be the center of everything and we want everyone else to tell us how good we are all the time, doesn't that make us a little bit arrogant? Like, why is it any different for God? This is where we, we need to remember that God is, is fundamentally different to us. See, the Bible loves metaphors. One of the metaphors it uses is a father and a son, or a father and children. So we can sometimes fall into the trap of thinking, oh, God is just a bigger version of us. He's the dad, we're the kids. But no, the Bible also uses language like creator and creation. He is the potter, we are the pot, we're the clay. Uh, he has fashioned us for his glory. And so when it comes... Uh, when, when people ask, you know, why, why does God do it like this? It, it's a little like saying, why does the sun expect all the planets to orbit around the sun? It's a little bit arrogant of the sun, isn't it? Sh- really, surely we should give Pluto a go and the sun should go and orbit around Pluto for a time. No, it doesn't work because when it comes to orbit, mass matters. And when it comes to God, worship matters. Or when it comes to worship, being God matters. God is on the throne. He's the center of ultimate reality. And when everything recognizes that, when creation operates the way that it should and orbits around God, living for God and his praise and glory, there is shalom. That's the biblical word for peace. That is when the world is as it should be. When things get out of orbit, literally all hell breaks loose. In fact, that's what the book of Revelation is about. The world is out of orbit. And Revelation is the the promise and the story of how one day God is going to bring this world back into orbit. To have everything recognize what is true and at the center of all things. That God and God alone is to be worshipped and praised forever and ever. Amen. The question for us as readers is whether we're going to do that voluntarily or under duress. Or to put it differently, the question is whether we think he's worthy. Four angelic beech- creatures say yes. Twenty-four elders say yes. What do you say? Is God worthy not just of sitting on the throne of the world, but the throne of your heart? Uh, he created you. And more than that, He sustains you. You know, sometimes I think we we think God creates us a little bit like those dolls where you wind them up at the back and then they sort of go and operate independently. They just, you know, they've got a set number of times where they can walk. That's not humanity. You you are not independent of God. Your existence is dependent on God for every moment, every second. You breathe because God tells your lungs to breathe. Your heart beats because God tells your heart to beat. Is he worthy? Well, if you're on autopilot, wake up. If you're out of orbit, course correct. Because the call of this chapter is to join our hearts to the chorus of creation and to say, yes, he is. Yes, the one who sits on the throne is worthy of our worship and praise. Chapter 4, God is worthy. Let's look at chapter 5 together. The Lamb is worthy. Because while this, this heavenly worship scene is going on, uh, John notices this little thing in the hand of the one on the throne. And so we read verse 1, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides, And sealed with seven seals? Uh, This scroll is going to play a major role uh, in the book as it unfolds. And we're going to see it uh, particularly next week. But let's ask the question, what is it? What is the scroll? What does it represent? Well, uh, Nancy Guthrie, who's written a wonderful commentary, it's called Blessed. It's actually where we got the series title from. uh, She writes this about the scroll. She says, The scroll represents the decrees of God concerning the unfolding of God's plans for judgment and salvation that were established before the foundation of the world and set in motion by Christ's death and resurrection. Now, a bit of a mouthful, but maybe just notice kind of what I think are the two key elements. First, this scroll contains God's plans for judgment and salvation. We're going to see that next week in particular. But then, second of all, the events of this scroll were set in motion by Christ's death and resurrection. In other words, and I want you to hear this, this scroll is not just about the final judgment. We often assume that the book of Revelation is just about the end of the world. No, no, no. This scroll contains events that were set in motion by the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so, in other words, it's not just about the final judgment, but between, time between the cross and the final judgment. Or Greg Beale, a commentator, says that this scroll contains all of sacred history and especially from the cross through to the new creation. So it's not just about the end of the world. This, this scroll contains God's plans for history. But just think of that, think of the implications of that for history. Uh, history is not determined by fate or chance but by the unfolding of God's plans as revealed in this scroll. This scroll contains God's plans to bring creation back into orbit around himself, to judge and do away with sin once and for all, to redeem a people for himself, to set things right. If you're at Weekend Away, everything we talked about at Weekend Away is written in this scroll. So it's a pretty important document. And then in verse 2 we read, And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? Probably just two things worth knowing. Number one is that when the seals are opened, the plans within the scroll are enacted. So to open the seals is to enact the plan of the scroll. Uh, The concept is taken from the idea of the ancient will. And so uh, we actually know from history that some of the emperors had a will in a scroll with seven seals on it. And it's kind of kept wrapped up until the executor of the will comes along, cracks open the seals, and enacts the will. And so, again, to, to break open the seals is to enact the will or the plan. The second thing is maybe just to ask the question... Why doesn't God open the, soul, the, the scroll? Like, he's written it. Presumably, he sealed it. Can't he just do it? He wrote it. Well, again, this is where I, th- I think Nancy J- Guthrie was uh, very helpful in addressing this question. Because remember, she says the scroll is God's plans for salvation and judgment. And so, within this scroll are God's plans to pour out incredible, abundant, and undeserved grace for repentant sinners. People like you and I, if you trust in Jesus. And his righteous and justly deserved judgment on unrepentant sinners. And therefore, for God to open his own scroll, for God to be the one that opens it, and therefore pour out pardon and forgiveness of sin, would be like God just sweeping sin under the rug of the universe. It would be a complete travesty of justice. And likewise, if God would open this scroll and pour out wrath without a mediator or savior for his people, no one would stand a chance. And so the whole scene cries out for someone who is worthy. Someone who is worthy to enact the plan in a way that saves God's people and God can still be just. And brings judgment, but is perfect in his justice. but no one can be found, verse 3 and 4. But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept, and I wept, because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside it. Can you imagine if this is where the book of Revelation ended? No one worthy to open the scroll. There's no end to the suffering of this world no confidence that one day good will triumph over evil, no assurance that justice will finally be done. Everything we spoke of at Weekend Away, no resurrection, no new heaven, no new earth, no hope. And so John weeps. We don't know for how long, but we're told he wept and he wept until finally he he hears this voice, a beautiful, sweet voice, I imagine, verse 5. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Uh, both of those terms are messianic labels from the Old Testament. So Lion of tribe of Judah is Genesis 49. Uh, the Root of David is Isaiah 11. If you go back and read those passages, uh, both of them speak of how a messianic king would come one day and triumph over god 's enemies and judge the world and so John is told the lion of the tribe of Judah has triumphed don 't weep he 's conquered, and he 's overcome the enemies of god and so as John turned, you know still tears streaming down his face you you, you would imagine him expecting to see this giant impressive, majestic, Aslan-like figure. But what he actually sees couldn't be more different. Verse 6. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He expects to see a lion, what he does see is a lamb, looking as though it's been slain. Now, It's a symbolic way of describing Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, but also this slain lamb. The emphasis on the slain lamb is to focus on the centrality of the cross. In fact, it's actually to highlight the triumph of the cross, to help us see the the way that this lion of the tribe of Judah triumphed was in allowing himself to be slain as a sacrificial lamb for the sins of his people. But you hear sacrifice, you hear slain and you think weak. But no, John says this is a strong lamb. And notice it's got seven horns. Horns in the Bible are always a sign of strength. And so this is a way of saying, yes, the lamb was slain, but his slaying was not ultimately a defeat because it was through his death, through his being slain, that this lamb was considered worthy to open the scroll and to enact God's plans for salvation and judgment that he established from before the creation of the world. He is worthy. Now in the verses that follow, John is gonna describe a scene which sounds remarkably similar to Daniel 7. Uh, And I want you to write that down. Uh, We're not gonna read it now. I think it's almost certainly describing the same event uh, kind of zoomed out, maybe from different angles, but I think the same thing is going on. I want you to look at it in your community groups this week. But it begins with the lamb walking up to the one, we might call him the Ancient of Days, or, or the one who is seated on the throne and and taking the scroll from the right hand. It's got this almost sword in the stone kind of vibe to it. You know, the sword in the stone, kind of the legend. Uh, try as they might, no one else could pull the sword out, and then along comes Arthur. That was easy try as they might, no one could grab the scroll and the one on the right, and the throne but the Lamb can do it and when he does all of heaven and earth and under the earth as we'll see, break out and praise. There's actually uh, three different verses to this song or three different choruses if you like it. and with each new chorus a new group is added to the mix until finally literally everything that possibly could praise God is praising God and the one who sits on the Lamb Throne, sorry. The Lamb. Uh, let's, uh, we'll start in verse 4 and 9. This is first the 24 elders and the creatures that we read about in the last chapter. So they're singing out. What are they saying? They say, You are worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Why is Jesus worthy? Because he's purchased a people for God by his blood and he's made them to be a kingdom of priests and to reign upon the earth. Uh, you know, I struggled all week. Um, how do I kind of press this one home? Because I reckon it's got to be one of the best verses in the Bible. I I still have nothing for you. (laughs) I was like, how how do I press it, press it, press it? We've got a song which I think is going to do it for us. But for now, let let me just read it to you, or just tell it to you again. Why is Jesus worthy? Because he was slain. The God of the universe, the second person, of the Trinity, who, who put on flesh the Son of God was slain. And by his blood, the precious blood of the lamb, he purchased a people for God. And he's made, God has, the lamb has made them to be priests, to serve God and to live forever and ever and reign forever and ever on the earth. For those with ears to hear, this has got Exodus language written all over it. Although it's kind of so much more. You see, God's people have not just been delivered out of Egypt, but they have been delivered out of the rule and power of Satan. And they're not going to just enter an old earth promised land, but a promised land that covers the new earth in its entirety. And so as Greg Beale says, the slain lamb of the Israelite cult has become the end-time king of the cosmos. And so heaven breaks out in worship. I began today asking you uh, we really need to figure out whether following Jesus is worth it. Uh, Is he worth living for? Is he worth making sacrifices for? Because he calls us to make them. Is he worth, if necessary, dying for? Well, the answer of the 24 elders and the living creatures is yes, yes, he is. And what we're going to see now is so too say the angels. In verse 11, John says, then I saw angels, many angels. It's a slight understatement. He says, angels upon angels, 10,000 upon 10,000. I did the math. I've got to calculate it. It's 100 million. So That's a lot of angels. And what are they saying? Verse 12, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Is he worthy? Will the angels say so? And then there's a third chorus that joins the song. But this one is interesting because if you read it, John says, this chorus is sung by every creature in heaven, on the earth, and under the earth. The reason that part's interesting is because those under the earth is usually in the Bible a reference to those who've rejected God. And yet what do they say? Well, in verse 13, it says, to him who sits on the throne... And to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Uh, Greg Beale says that this is a glimpse into the future where even the enemies of God will bow the knee before him. Uh, Paul, the apostle, says the same thing in his letter to the Philippians. One day every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. That was awkward. (laughs) I can remember everything else, but not that verse. I'll say it again. The message of the book of Revelation is that God, through the Lamb, is doing what is necessary to bring creation back into orbit. One day, all things will revolve around God as they should. question is, will you do it willingly? Or will you do it under duress? Or to put it differently, is he worthy? Because you have a choice now. We have a choice now. So if he is worthy, the call of these chapters is to join the voice of our hearts to the chorus of the universe, to repent of sin, to renounce the seduction of the comfort, the wealth, and the pleasures of this world, and then trust in Christ alone remaining faithful to him no matter the cost. Why? Because he's worthy. Uh, I had written this whole sermon with the goal of Charlie or the expectation that Charlie was going to play an item afterwards. Uh, And then he went and had a child. So (laughs) he's not going to do that. Uh, But the song was so good and I thought it would be still helpful that I've asked Jade to just play it over the sound system Uh, The lyrics are going to come up on the screen. So just take this moment as an opportunity to reflect and then we're all going to stand together and sing our two final songs.